my plea at the end would be don't don't under-resource the system. I would put the unmarried on the same footing as the married when it came to distribute the assets of the relationship. Hello and welcome back to season three of the Resolution podcast. We wanted to start this season with a bang, so we are joined by Sir Nicholas Mostyn. Judge, please can you introduce yourself to our audience? I'm Nicholas Mostyn. I'm a judge of the High Court sitting in the Family Division mainly. When I say mainly, about 60% of the time and about 40% of the time I sit in the Administrative Court in the King's Bench Division. And together with that now, of course, you are also a podcaster. I am a podcaster, yes. Recent development, yeah. Yes, recent, although I should say I'm obsessed with movers and shakers. I've listened to all, I think, four or five of your episodes. But it's got a lot more swearing in it than than I expected. <laughs> well, that's Paxman. Yes. We don't bleep him out. We, we bleep all the other swearing, all the rest other swearing out. Although we have a debate about whether we're quoting Paxman, we should be bleeped. So, but uh, that's, uh, I think we resolved that particular issue, but all, all swearing is bleeped unless it's from Paxman because it would be impossible otherwise. <laughs> yes, I suppose that would cut down what, what he's saying. So you tell us in Movers and Shakers, just for people who haven't heard it yet, you tell us a bit about some of the adaptions you've had in respect to being able to continue in your job. Would you be able to share that with our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, of course, I would encourage all your listeners to listen as well to Movers and Shakers, which is dropped every Saturday morning. And we've done five episodes and there will be another in this series, at least five. And we have raised the money to do series two and a series three at the moment so and we think there's a lot more to be said uh, each episode has a theme to it and so we take it in turns to curate the episode although the um we do we we tried very much not to be scripted and always and as rory kettle jones says the the media is um busking so we try to busk mainly but there are there are sort of bullet points that we try to keep to and we're going to be talking on recording on Monday, we're going to be filmed actually by the BBC doing it, by the one show is going to film us um, on Monday doing it in the pub. And we're going to be talking about, which is quite relevant to the question you just asked me, about Parkinson's in the workplace. Okay. And then we are going to, that's the first one. And the second one is about medication, when we've got a top neurologist, a professor, and a pharmacist to talk about the pills that we all take. We all go around vast amounts of pills, you say. So the episode that we're going to be recording about Parkinson's in the workplace is going to have a, an employment lawyer on it, shortly from Peter McRoberts from Panic Speech, who's going to explain what the legal obligations of employers are to people who are disabled, which would include anybody with Parkinson's disease. And as you know, the law, the law requires employers to make reasonable adaptations or adjustments to enable people with disability to do their jobs. And in my case, the um, adaptations that needed to be made had to cope with the fact that I have basically lost the ability to write at the speed that a judge needs to write to take a note of submissions or evidence, submissions of counsel or evidence of witnesses. And that that has, I've, I've lost that. I also, my typing has become painfully bad. 
So the two things that have been done is I've been given the, the best uh, voice transcription equipment that is available. I've got the top dragon. It works extremely well for me and it's very well trained. And so all the judgments that I write are all dictated. But if you use them, you know that they do make mistakes and they get very confused by proper nouns. And this is where Safia, who's my judicial assistant, comes in. And the, that's the second adaptation they made. They provided me with a judicial assistant who makes sure that all the papers are in the right order. I only, ha- I only have papers electronically, so they're all in the right order. She then summarises the case for me in a note. You'll tell me if any of this is incorrect, Sophia, but this summarises the case for me in a note. During the uh, proceedings, she, makes, takes a, she is a stenographer and takes a complete, accurate transcript of everything that is said, so I'm able to sit there and just listen. And she produces that at 5pm every day, a complete transcript. Now, that has been a very interesting experience because I've suddenly realized that this is a better way of judging than the way I've been doing for the last 15 years. It is a much better way. You're sitting looking at the speaker. You're not writing it in your notebook. You're looking at the speaker, whether it's the witness or counsel, and you're listening to them intently. And you're not, because when you're writing, you're always perhaps a a phrase or two behind what they're saying, aren't you? So your mind is actually working in a sort of binary way or in a, uh, yeah, binary way is a good way of putting it because you're listening to what is happening, but you're actually recording something that was said a few seconds earlier. So your mind has to be very active, whereas the way you now just really concentrate, you're able to see if demeanor, if demeanor counts for anything, and I'm not sure it does, but you're able to see exactly faces that people are pulling while they're giving their evidence, and you're able to see how other people are behaving in court when evidence has been given, although I'm a doubtful whether that's of any particular relevance, but it's also quite interesting. And so it has enabled me, I think, to judge cases in a better way than I did before. Mm. The other, the third adaptation or adjustment that has been made is I only sit four days a week. Okay. I only sit four days a week because one of the features of the condition is you get very tired indeed. You really, really, really get, well, it's not so much tired, it's fatigue. And so um, the, the one thing I definitely do not want to be doing is falling asleep on the bench. I mean, this was, in fact, one of the reasons why Sir David Penry Davy ultimately retired. He was pet. He became very concerned. He was falling. Would fall asleep. And I'm that. Ha- I think that has been one of the things that has. Um, I it hasn't. Ha- I haven't come anywhere near it. But I really wouldn't want to be exposed to that risk. But I do need that extra day to do uh, to, to Im- make sure the judgments are in good order and to basically recover from the, uh, the the fatigue that I just mentioned. So those are the adjustments that they have made. And I. I have quarterly reviews with the judicial office caseworker, Steve Blackmore, who's an absolutely marvellous chap and who could not have been more concerned for me. And, and, and the judicial supervisor of that has been Mrs. Justice Tyson. Without those two, I don't think that it would have been very difficult. If I'd, if I'd just been expected to carry on as before, it would have been very difficult to have done the job properly. I mean, your productivity doesn't seem to have decreased over this period. No, I, I, I think the adjustments have enabled me to carry on as before. I mean, as I said in the last episode, that my productivity, if anything, has gone slightly up. But then I, I thought that is probably because I had the condition, didn't realise it. Mm. And it was probably slowing me down in a way that is now managed. I mean, obviously, the medication regime I'm doing is makes an enormous difference. But I think that... I think I, I, mean, I wasn't intellectually impaired. There's no question of any of my cases having been of having been um, judged in a way in a in an unsatisfactory way because the I had the latent I had the condition, but it was undiagnosed. There's no question of that at all. But I think physically, 
I, I mean, I do remember at the end of five day weeks, four or five years ago, thinking, "Oh my word, I, five day week, thinking, oh, I'd feel tired. And I now, I think I know why. So no, my productivity hasn't gone down because the, what, what the law has required in terms of adjustments has worked. Yeah. So I've been very fortunate. You tell us in Movers and Shakers which judgment you're most proud of. And for people mm-hmm. who haven't listened to that episode yet, could you share that with our listeners? Yeah, it's, it's not a family case. It's a judicial review case on the application of RF against the Secretary of State for work and pensions. And it was in relation to the lawfulness of a statutory instrument that was signed by a Minister of State in relation to PIP. Now, you do you know what PIP is? The Personal Independence Payment. It used to be called the Disability Living Allowance. And it's a non-means-tested benefit that is payable, payable to people who are disabled, who can prove themselves to be disabled. Yeah, that's another story. And to enable them to get, get out and function normally. Okay? So it's, it, it is, um, it's a Per, it's renamed personal independence payment. So what it says on the tin describes what its objective is. <laughs> and the and the statutory instrument, because the, the parent statute allowed the Secretary of State to prescribe what the nature of the disability was that uh, would qualify for the payment. And they said it would be any disability as long as its origin wasn't psychological. So this meant there's some people who suffer from agoraphobia um, or depression, and who couldn't go out because of the didn't get in a pip, and so they they sued. Mind, um, I mean, they had a nominal plaintiff who was RF, a nominal plaintiff, a claimant. I mean, but it was basically Mind who were uh, the pr- primary interveners to say this was blatantly discriminatory mm. against p- people of a certain type, and they sent Sir James Eady in to argue this. Um, and so they sent the heavy the heavy. Uh, artillery and to argue this but i i was co- absolutely convinced and that it was discriminatory and i quashed it and people sort of burst into tears when i quashed it so i was very gratified by that and then that afternoon or maybe the next afternoon estimate Bay stood up in the house of commons and said that they were very disappointed and they they'd been advised by top lawyers that the judgment was entirely wrong but they weren't going to appeal yeah. <laughs> And so that restriction went away and a lot of people got their personal independence payment who would not have had it and were able to go out and live a relatively normal life. But this had a sort of macro effect. I mean, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were affected by this decision. And it has made a significant improvement to their lives, subject, of course, to the assessment process, which is another story, as I'm sure you know. Hmm. I mean, one way in which it strikes me that you do improve or have the opportunity to improve lives of people in the family court is is by clarifying aspects of the law so mm-hmm. that other litigants who find themselves in a similar position don't have to go through all of the all the all the contortions that the people in front of you have had to go through so i mean other judgments that you've done in family proceedings that you think of have helped in that way, if you like, in clarifying, clarifying. Yes, the I, mean, I, I, I agree with you. I did once say, quoting, because I do think he's a master of language, although I would not want myself to be associated morally or ideologically or politically with Antonin Scalia, but he was a master of language. He wrote fantastically well. And he did say that the rule of law is the law of rules. 
And I have tried as hard as I can to set out simple rules to, in a, and you'll see a judgment I'm just about to publish about child support, where I've set out, tried to clarify what the guidelines should be for the those people earning more than the 150,000 where the statute runs out. Oh, yes, please. And no, no, I, 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 there are, as I say, there are a very a great, very, up to 650,000 people. There are ten, hundreds of thousands of people earning in that range for whom there isn't, aren't guidelines. So I've done guidelines. I'm, I have done my best in that respect to provide rules. I've provide, tried to provide rules about child, child um, spousal maintenance. I've tried to provide rules about injunctions and freezers and things of that nature because for the very reason that you say to try and provide certainty so that people can settle their cases without having a punting court. And I suppose conversely to that, are there any decisions that looking back you think, mm, goodness, I, I sort of wish that one had been appealed? Well, I mean, there are a number of decisions which I publicly re- repented of and recanted as heresy. Um, there's ones why I, when I said that having doing everything behind in secret behind closed doors was fine. So there's DL and SL and WA, the WM, that one, and Appleton and Gallagher, where I said, you know, it's absolutely fine to be anonymous behind closed doors. And that, that was all completely, completely wrong. I, I mean, I don't regret doing it because the, you know, the process of transformation has been, has been very uplifting for me. But apart from that, are there any decisions where I look back and I think, mm. <laughs> I did not really very many. I remember once, about four or five years ago, at a, the Chancery Bar Association annual summer party, being, talking to Lord Justice Lewison, who's very clever, of course, and he did say to me, Nicholas, when we overturn you, do you ever think that we might be right? <laughs> and, then I, and then he looked at me and he said, well, that was a stupid question, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So from what you've just said, would you would you describe yourself as a convert to transparency? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I, absolutely. I mean, and you're going to ask why, because I then I read, I sat down, I sat down and I read the dissenting judgment in the Court of Appeal. There were two dissenting judgments in the Court of Appeal, but the one of the dissenting judgment of Lord Moulton, as he wasn't at that time, he was Lord Justice Fletcher Moulton at the time, but he actually became Lord Moulton. By the time the case went to the House of Lords, he was already in the House of Lords, but obviously he couldn't sit in that, on that panel, um, of Lord Moulton in the Court of Appeal. And the judge, the judgment of the Scottish judge, Lord Shaw, Dunfermline, I read there really carefully and I sat down and went, oh, you must have, you've really not, you've not understood it at all. You really have not understood it. And then I um, read the judgment, the opinion of Lord Blainsborough, you can't remember him, in the 1930s in the Privy Council in a case called Macpherson where the minister and the Canadian minister's divorce was done in, absolutely in secret in the judge's library behind closed doors. And he wrote this incredible judgment where he said, if a judge dispenses justice behind closed doors, he's not being a judge. He's, some, what it, he's something else. He's an arbitrator, perhaps, a mediator, but he's not a judge. He's just not a judge. And I, and I, having read those judgments, I just, I just realised that, that what I'd done was completely wrong. Now, I, I don't dispute that in cases in involving children the, the exception that was identified by the house of lords in scott you know, they talked about wards and lunatics well, now you would talk about children and incapacitated people i mean there and those are cases which should be heard either in secret or anonymously because the back the issue is now whether anonymity it's not about whether it's behind closed doors anymore um i mean that has been that has been recognized that it's been recognized for um 
over 100 years now. So I don't, I don't have any problem with that. And then cases about secret processes, you know, patents and, and things like that, or national security, well, of course, those should be. A money case? Money case? Why is, why is, why is, that, not heard, not, why is that not heard in a court properly? I mean, it would be if they weren't married, wouldn't it? It would be if somebody's dead under the inheritance act. Why? And people say, because it's private. But I mean, and it's private and it might upset the children, but I dare say a defamation case or a boundary dispute or a partnership dispute. I mean, the, these, all these people have children, don't they? they? Who might read about it in the newspapers. I mean, that's what happens. That's why it's, a, it's what's happened. Courts are held at her. That's, courts have their proceedings done publicly so, so that the people can see that everything is being done properly. And that is part of the constitutional imperative of our particular arm of the of government, which is the judicial arm of government. And I I read those two, those three opinions, and I realised that I've been completely wrong. And is a an inevitable consequence of what you're saying that the the wealthy or those who are concerned, I suppose, about their their privacy will therefore seek to resolve their disputes outside court. I mean, because an arbitration or a a private FDR is is always going to to be confidential. Yes, well, I mean, I, I mean, an FDR is always confidential, but you know. I'm not quite. I don't really. I'm not quite sure about this point, which is that the rich will be able to buy privacy that the middle classes won't be able to. Yeah, because they couldn't afford an arbitrator. Well, the middle classes, of course, will have had an FDR, which is completely free from the state. So, so a free mediation judicial mediation from the state, at which most of the cases settle, don't they? 90%. Well, what percentage get past FDR? It's uh, court settlement rates, we were told by His Honour Judge Hess, is is 50-50, and we think private FDRs are, are higher. Yes. So then the ones that go past private FDR and are heading for trial, the, the I would have... Is there, I mean, is there really an economic disadvantage to certain middle class people who just simply couldn't afford to buy an arbitrator, whereas rich people would? I mean, I have plenty of rich people at the moment still litigating away. And I hear all my cases. I don't hear them in open court like James Holman did, but I hear them with the doors open and I don't impose any reporting restrictions because I can't, I don't see that I can lawfully do that actually without really doing the re air balancing exercise. But I haven't seen the super rich heading off to arbitrations at the expense of the middle classes. So I don't really quite understand that point, actually. I mean, what, and what's more, if that is a good point, why don't they do it in the King's Bench Division? They don't. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I suspect an arbitrator employed swiftly after a FDR would be more cost effective than waiting six months a year, whatever it might be for your, your court final hearing anyway. Well, I, I do agree. Funnily enough, I've set up for, I have two big cases lined up to do before I retire. And I've converted them all slightly to, and it's because I thought it would be an interesting experiment to have a two or three day FDR in these cases with an arbitrator booked for days four and five if we don't settle. Because it seemed to me that in those cases that there are no issues of fact anymore. So it's purely how I should exercise my discretion. There are no there are no valuation issues. There's no there's no dishonesty issues. There's no non-disclosure issues. So it's purely how I should exercise my discretion. And I just thought I just think that those sort of cases they really that's coming back to what you were saying earlier. 
is that unfortunately the rules I've tried to set down have been watered down in favor of individual bespoke discretion. And people are saying, you know, that the discretion should be exercised this way. Well, I would have thought that in a couple of days, I'd be surprised if I couldn't get a settlement. But if I can't, then they can go and just see the arbitrator. And the arbitrator won't hear evidence, I should think, won't hear all evidence. I, I, I don't, I don't uh, accept the premise of your question that if we were to treat money cases in the same way as all civil litigation about money, that a certain sector of litigants would suddenly depart the scene for private justice. I don't accept that. Good, thank you. I mean, one of the, of course, one of the, one of the ironies, though, is that I became, when I was appointed, I became a very good friend of Sir Bernard Eder, who was a, went to the, took a position in the commercial court. Extraordinary. He had not sat for one day as a recorder or deputy judge. He'd done no judging at all. Became a high court judge from nowhere and didn't like it at all. And then after four years left to, to become an arbitrator. Fair enough. And, you know, doing a, not being subject to the sort of relentless, the relentlessness of being a high court judge. In the commercial world, the arbitrations are ubiquitous because they are written into the contracts about the, which are the subject matter of the litigation. There is an arbitration clause. How I said, what is the incidence of those cases which do not have arbitration clauses of them electing to go to arbitrate as, a, as opposed to litigating in court? He said, absolutely infinitesimally small. They're called ad hoc arbitrations, I think. They're infinitesimally small. Everybody goes and has their case heard by a proper judge in court unless they're forced to by an arbitration clause. So, Simon, that's why I think that perhaps this theory that the rich will depart in droves for private justice, it's not actually borne out by those people who have that same election in the commercial world. So every every prenup I've ever written, I think, has an arbitration clause in. Do you think those will be upheld? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, we've just recorded an episode where we were talking about there's a greater understanding of economic abuse. There's a greater understanding that for, and I'm, I'm going to phrase it in terms of wives and husband, albeit I realised it could go either way, but perhaps you're acting for a wife. There are issues about non-disclosure. You don't have access to family money or money that's been generated during the time of the marriage. And then there are issues about being able to identify to the court what you believe you know about about the finances and how you can establish that. Because obviously we know self-help is is not condoned and is is not allowed. But if you look at it from the other side, from women who are saying, well, look, I am being economically abused. I was uh, kept in the dark about what we have and what we've generated. And now there is a way I could show to the court that it exists. And the other side is not disclosing it, but I'm not allowed to go off and do that. Yeah, it's a question of whether the ends justify the means. Um, yes, I mean, you know, the, if there's suspected dishonesty, and you actually prove it by doing what what is frowned upon, then of course you will vindicate it. But if you don't, then you're going to end up in a very. Well, I mean, I think there are sort of about there are a number of a number of points that need to be made, which you need to be aware of as a matter of law. First of all, if documents are taken. You know, the old fashioned Hildebrand documents are taken, they will be admissible. I mean, under this law, the law of evidence in this country, the civil law of evidence in this country, 
That's old Lord Ashburton and Pate, right back in the 19th century. Calcraft and Guest, back in the 19th century. They will be admissible. They will be, it, would be a, it would be a bold judge who could say that if they were relevant, that they would not, they would be not admitted because they had been taken in circumstances which were questionable. It would be a very bold judge. So that's the first thing. You know, it's, it, 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 I've been to events where people have pointed out they in the civil world, they are admissible, right? So what the Immerman rules are really talking about is professional conduct, aren't they? They're talking about professional conduct. And the problem is that it is a very, it, the judges cannot be seen to be saying to advisors, you must be an accessory to what probably would be a crime under the comp- computer misuse act if you went into your husband's computer and had his, written down his passport because you found it in Britain, not passport, password, found it written down the back of a diary and got into his computer. That is definitely a crime. And so for a lawyer to say, to condone that, or, or, or even worse, to advise that, is a very, very difficult position. So that is why the stance of the law has to be, no, you must not do it. And that so that uh, the rules have been devised so that if the if the wife comes in and there's a lawyer on the other side, you send them all back unread, but you say, we, we know perfectly well that you've got them, so you've got to disclose the relevant ones, and that, I think that works. And if, they, if the other side is not represented, you go in front of a judge and you pass the buck to the judge and you say, you, you tell us what we should do. However, I think, though, that um, there, is the, there is nothing in the, in the case of Inman, to my memory, which says that, uh, um, the, the, that, that seeks to regulate the way the clients should behave, and nor can it, in my opinion. So I think that Immerman is really about professional conduct. Mm. But, um, yes, I mean, the phenomenon of economic abuse, I mean, what is now being identified as economic abuse has been around for a, lo- a long time, and that the wife, as it normally is empirically, is not only dis- prejudiced economically when it comes to the conduct of the litigation, but I mean, that's just a continuance of the way that they've been treated during the marriage. marriage I remember when we were talking about the coming in of child support being taken for lunch by Donald Dewar, who was Labour's spokesman on so- matters of social security. Do you remember him? He was a yeah. Scot. And um, I think he was the fir- first minister after de- devolution happened in Scotland. He was, very, he was a very impressive man. He, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Very impressive man. And he said the most important, the, the, as far as he was concerned, why was, why was child benefit so important? I said, because he said, because it's the only money that the women have independently mm. in most families. That's, and, 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 it, it was, and you would think that, that Tiny amount of money, but that was all that they in so many families. That was the sole amount, the amount, amount of money that um, the, the, the woman had, and the, the, the purse strings otherwise are completely controlled by the man. So, and I, I it, it was, it was a, it was a revelatory moment when that was explained to me. It's interesting. I, um, I have a, a fascination with Duxbury, and. I think it's it's great to be able to ask you about it. I mean, as as I understand it, um, the Duxbury tables are something that you were very involved in devising. You're you're involved every year in in yes. reviewing and updating. Could, could you perhaps explain a bit about the genesis of 
of the, of the Duxbury calculations and the process that that's gone through, and then obviously, um, I've not yet met a, a financial professional who isn't critical of them and doesn't say that you know if one were to um, to present them <laughs> with, a, with a pot of money uh, in in accordance with the Duxbury calculation that they because they, they don't because that's because that's that's they don't because they're just looking at it from a financial point of view they don't precisely what the point of Duxbury is what Duxbury really is it's the value of a maintenance a normal unsecured parochial payments order with the right to make a claim under the inheritance act that's what you're rep- replacing which I call as a secure periodical payments order. But if you say that, nobody really knows what you're talking about. So you're basically talking about a normal maintenance order with the right to apply under the Inheritance Act. That is what you're trying to value in Duxbury. So, I mean, people are this big, as it was in the Financial Remedies Journal, the thing which said, which said that you've lost out time and time again. And then it came to Mills McCartney, okay? And she said, oh, Heather Mills, she's going to be well out of pocket. I said, no, she hasn't. She remarried. She remarried for her. What did she? She made a. She absolutely cashed in on that. She was paid. She was paid for th- thirty-five years, and she only needed five. So, I mean, don't tell me that people be, that it always that it always runs out of money. Not at all. She made a. And, and so that is what people have got to understand that the reason that the rates are pitched in a generous way is to try to because it's impossible in a in an actual error way to factor in the rate of remarriage. So you, what you do is you, you factor it in by making the, the, the rates pretty um, uh, bullish to, in order to realise that there are winners and losers when it comes to Duxbury. They're not all losers by any means. I mean, the story of it, of course, it comes from the Duxbury case. Tim Lawrence did the first Duxbury spreadsheet, but it wasn't a calculating spreadsheet. I mean, he did, did it. He worked it out manually to show you what it, the sum would be on certain assumptions. And I wrote the first Duxbury program in, in, on a spreadsheet. I was, I was in my mid-30s and I, in a program called Framework 2. It's all gone now. And it was regarded as complete black magic at the time. And I just did it the way, you know, year one, two, all, of, all the years would, off the life tables and then starting fund, growth, tax, expenditure, carried to the next year. And, and so it, it developed like that. But, and I then we bought, we published in At a Glance and I've got the first edition here and the tables are there. And then the rates, the people who've done it, the rates have been periodically reviewed. And then um, I had to, a headlong challenge, I had to consider the rates in, one of the one of the cases, DL and SL number three or something like that, and we went right into it, and we we were satisfied that the rates were, whilst they were quite bullish, they were reasonable. They did match over long periods what stock markets would do, and so um, we are we are going we are um, quite confident that the rates, having regard to what the object of Duxbury is supposed to be, um, we're quite confident that they are robust and realistic. But in the light of the fact, things that you say, Simon, and we read the thing, we are going to reconvene the Duxbury Committee this year. And so and we're going to invite some of the sceptics onto it on the basis on the basis, you know, about people in tents and outside tents. That yes. metaphor, which I won't use on this program. <laughs> you don't like bad language. But um, but uh, that I am, um, you know, we're going to invite some of the sceptics onto it so that they can argue the toss about that. Can resolution have a seat at that table? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm. I have to say, I won't be involved because I'm. 
in, after July, I'm going to be involved in my books, but only in a sort of editorial function, you know, to ensure that the language make, makes sense. I'm not, I'm not going to be doing any uh, active participation in uh, legal things. I think you have, a, if we're going to do something like that, you've got a, a responsibility to keep up to date with the law. So uh, you won't see me at that, but Lewis Marx will be in charge of that. And he will be convening the um, and resolution, I'm sure, will be invited. And the FLBA will invite, obviously, the FLBA, because they publish the, the book that it's in. And they'll be invited. And if the if the rates, if, if the consensus emerges that the rates should be changed, then the rates can be changed. But please understand what the object is, winners and losers. I, I always describe it as the as a way of calculating the price, the price of buying out somebody's maintenance. Yes. The price of buying out somebody's maintenance, secured maintenance claims. Yeah. Maintenance claims. The program capitalized. I mean, you can put any rates you want in. You can take them. You can persuade a judge to say we're not disputing the we're not disputing the the structure the structural architecture of it. I mean, nobody is doing it. I don't think anybody. You know, the, all the premise about what portion will be taxed and what will be carried forward and all those aspects of the architecture. People just don't like the headline rates, or even change those. And there's nothing to stop somebody coming along to me and saying, well, instead of using 3.75, I've done one on the three. OK, well, then fine. Let's, you know, then let's debate it. And what's more, I would like to call Mr. So-and-so to give evidence to justify it. Um, to which, you know, first question in cross-examination said, um, would you, what, what would you require her to give money back if she remarried? <laughs> yeah. Another subject on which you have um, voiced strong opinions, I think it's fair to say, in recent judgments, is is the subject of costs. Huh. And I suppose as as lawyers, we're we're on the horns of a dilemma, really, because we we all deprecate huge costs in cases, in other people's cases, and we all feel that the costs that we run up in our cases are entirely justified if only people could see what we were having to do behind the scenes where where do you think the future lies but is, aren't, you, aren't you sacrificed you're you're sacrificed on a bonfire of disgraceful behavior by a few which i mean you, the cases you know, where mostin explodes 8 million 8 million pounds worth of costs in that case which is all in non-matrimonial money anyway. I mean, it's just, and then case after, I mean, the, in, the, in the cases that I heard now, there's rarely a case where the, the combined costs are under a million now. Rarely a case, there must be a better way of doing this. Um, but of course, those, those cases are completely non-representative, aren't they? Because the, the, all the cases that settled don't have costs like that. All the cases that are heard in the CFC, they're not like that. So, we're making sort of generalized pronouncements based on hard cases which aren't representative of what is the, the, the norm. On the other hand, everybody is very concerned about costs. And I, before I, you came, I, before I joined, I was reading the, the consultation paper from the Ministry of Justice where mediation will be made mandatory. And I'm, you know, do you think that, that I think that probably will make a difference, don't you? I mean, the voucher scheme has made a difference. The voucher scheme has made a difference and, and mediation for the right case is definitely how family cases ought to be ought to be resolved. Um, I, it's interesting what, what you say about the, the few. I mean, I slightly suspect that as a proportion of the family wealth, 
it it may be that some of the cases in the CFC actually are more. Yes. More than, relative. Than relative. Some of those that you see, yeah. Yes, I agree with that. And during my career, which is a long career, I was there at the heart of the reform of ancillary relief, as we called it, which followed the decision of Mrs. Justice Booth and Evans and Evans and led to the formation of the um, ancillary relief working party, which then met. And I've been, because we wrote and we did a little anthology. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know if you, you did. Do you remember, do you remember this? No. The, the Silver Jubilee, this was in uh, 2021, was the Silver Jubilee of the 1996 pilot scheme, which brought into, which brought, into being the procedures you now know, which has at its heart two things for me. So that disclosure, because you haven't, you can't, you don't remember what disclosure was like in the old days. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And then the FDR, those were the two key um, elements of the pilot scheme. And when you read the minutes, as this is 25 years ago, it was one word on page after page is costs, 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 right? So this was designed to address the costs. Okay, so then it was rolled out in 2000. Okay, but everybody's still talking 25 years later about costs, aren't they? And um, whatever whatever one does, oh, so we had we had called the bank, we had very very ferocious called the bank, and then we abolished called the bank to see none of it worked. Got having half called the bank, full called the bank, and no called the bank that didn't make any difference to costs at all. And then uh, we've had recently, since I've been on the rule committee, I, I gave a decision called J&J saying, you know, judges must stop saying something must be done and actually do something. And then I look back at J&J and I said, what was I shouting about there? And I was shouting about half a million pounds worth of cost. Well, that's absolutely routine now. I mean, nobody would, it just looks, that looks banal, um, the cost that I was getting so worked up about. But, I, you know, I, I said in Xanthopoulos, I said in Xanthopoulos that the costs were, apocalyptic or something i said and uh, apparently the the lord chancellor mr Raab, i mean took it very seriously and that is what has caused him to issue the consultation paper so there's going to be mandatory mediation and it's going to be you know for rich and for poor they're all going to have to mediate but i don't know whether that's going to mean make any difference but but i actually happen to think that i happen to think that the rate of success of the voucher scheme which sort of which is boring but important does signify to me that mandatory mediation may well make a difference. Yes, well, here's here's hoping that it here's hoping that it does because the the impact of costs on a on a on a case where there isn't a great deal of money can can be life changing, can't it? Is there anything with your your leaving thoughts? Is there anything particularly that you would like to see reform of that we haven't touched on? I did three years on the rule committee, so most of the things I wanted to reform, but they're all slightly technical, but I got almost all of them through. I just my plea would be don't don't under resource the system. Almost all of the complaints, you know, the appeals that go up when people say I've been treated so badly, can all traceable to being under the system being under resourced, in my opinion. Judges, cases being People turning up ready to do a case, no judge available. I mean, it must, it's happening time and time again. We have got, we're supposed to have 30 staff in the clerk of the rules office. We've got eight. And so things are missed the whole time. Documents stay in a pile and don't move. Um, And so it's not a matter of reform. 
I mean, we are still the fifth richest country in the world. It, don't don't under resource. Don't starve the the justice system of resources. It's they've already realised that it, in fact it's a false economy because um, between when you read the consultation document, they now accept that they would have saved a lot of money if the voucher scheme had been more uh, wide widespread, which they were funding, than it in fact was. They now accept that. So um, I, I, my plea at the end would be don't, don't under-resource the system. As to whether, you know, substantive laws, I mean, I, a, a substantive laws, my own view, my own view is I would go to Australia when it comes to the unmarried. Now, you know what happened in Australia. In Australia, the marriage is a federal matter, so that is governed by the federal government, um, so passes a fe- the federal law, matrimonial clause, that applies throughout Australia. Um, the unmarried who are dealt with under the, the law of trust, they all dealt with by, uh, had their different laws in different states, and they all had different de facto relationship laws. And they got together, the states, and they said, um, we must try and have a common one. And uh, and they, they couldn't agree. So somebody said, why don't we just give it to the federal government? They can sort it out. They said, well, that's a brilliant idea. So they gave it to the, so they, um, they devolved it or opposite of devolution. They upvolved it to the federal government who saw this thing coming. The federal government said, we'll just do it the same as divorced people. So they have exactly the same subject only to the fact it has to be a marriage, of, uh, 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 sorry, a relationship of at least two years. If it's a relationship of each two years, it is exactly the same. So you do not talk in Australia about the length of the marriage. You talk about the length of the relationship that because they are, they've been completely assimilated and the world has, the sky has not fallen in and it has not been the end of the world. Now, I suggested this one year after being appointed back in 2011 called in a speech about um, Viva El Loro, which was uh, long live the parrot because Mr. Justice Coleridge has suggested that um, matrimonial section 25 was a dead parrot. And I said that I would put um, the unmarried on the same footing as the married when it came to uh, distribution exercise of the powers to distribute the assets of the relationship would be done under the same discretionary powers. And this fetched a a tremendous broadside against me from the Daily Mail. On the front page, a front page article from Sarah Bine saying, unlike unlike you, Sir Nicholas, I believe in marriage, which I... (laughs) I think I think to to say that I think that the unmarried should be treated as well as the married is doesn't mean I don't believe in marriage. But um I I can't I don't I just don't understand why everybody is still talking about a different system for the unmarried. I mean the Law Commission's uh, recommendation is a different system for the unmarried, isn't it? It's yeah. it's they've looked a bit at Scotland, which is a sort of pure economic compensation system, isn't it? But why why don't we just do why don't we just do Miller and Miller and McFarlane? Why don't we do that? Apply that to unmarried? Why does it make any difference? I mean, why would it be so wrong to have a spousal maintenance order if that was needed? If they happened, to, why do you have to be married to get one of those? I mean, if the need is there and you've made the commitment to each other in a form of partnership, why not have one? And the, and the Australians say, but I mean, they don't make those very often anyway, and we are going that way ourselves, but. They don't have any problem with it. The New Zealanders are the same. So why don't we do it? I just don't understand it. It would sort out huge injustice on death as well, wouldn't it? Well, fortunately, the Inheritance Act didn't recognise the Mm. injustice against people who uh, were in a a dependence 
of that nature. And so, but you, you, you're confined, aren't you, only to maintenance. You're not confined. If you, there's a difference under the Inheritance Act between dying as a widow and dying as an ex-wife or a cohabitee. Because if you're an ex-wife or cohabitee, your claim is confined solely to, um, to um, maintenance. So I do think that I would, um, I would pass a one-line act which will say this act, matrimonial course, this extends to the unmarried. I, I, I was thinking as I was listening um, whether the Australians have had any cases where, I mean, the big, bigamy, as it were, would become an issue, wouldn't it? It might be entirely possible under that sort of rule to to have more than one simultaneous relationship. One can imagine people who might. Well, I, I, know, I think the people, I think resolution ought to host a conference and get the Australians to come over and tell us about their system. Absolutely, but the the old case like that is not a reason for do is not a reason for not doing it, in my opinion. Indeed, I I think that we are too insular, literally insular, and we seem to think that there's some marvelous thing north of the border of this compensatory thing, and we're not looking at our. Of, you know, there are kith and kin in Australia and New Zealand. And if I were a resolution, I would bring somebody over and have a big conference and, and get, get them to preach the merits of it. Because it seems to me to, he says, when you talk to the lawyers out there, it's oh, solved so many problems. It's solved so many problems. And people are now really happy about it. People get married because they want to get married. People don't get married or not married for economic reasons because they know that the, the, the only, the only thing that is slightly ugly are the, one year and eleven months. Sign this. Sign this agreement, or or you're out. Okay, <laughs> okay. There are a few cases like that, but I, I think they're largely apocryphal. But that's what I would do. If we did that this year, would you come? Yeah. Well, in Australia, definitely pay my effort. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I mean, I thought probably England, but um, <laughs> if we did that, would you would you interrupt your retirement and come? I'll come. I'd certainly, I'm going to go to the At a Glance conference in um, October, and I hope you'll come along to the At a Glance conference in October. We've got an extremely good, extremely good program. We've got Lord Leggett coming back to do part two of his great speech because he's only said half of what he wants to say about credibility, and he's got some very, very interesting things. He's done some, a lot, lot of work. He is super clever. Thank and you. what are you going to do when you're not uh, at the At a Glance conference or? Anything else? What are you going to do the rest of your time when you're not podcasting? The podcasts, I think, will carry on for a year or so. And then I'm going to do a lot of um, effort in the Parkinson's world, raising money for that elusive cure. It's always five years away, isn't it? It's always five Mm -hmm. years away. I actually think that it's a bit of a pipe dream to think that it's sort of neuroplasticity they can restore the, the dead neurons. I mean, I, I really think that is an ask. But I think that the uh, pharmacological side, I don't quite understand why if we're losing dopamine, which we are, and they, the drugs give us dopamine, I don't understand why they don't work perfectly. I don't, and I don't understand why we have to keep taking more and more. I mean, I know that neurons, you would have thought that you know, we're losing neurons and then they losing dopamine producing function. They give us more. So I didn't quite understand. So I'm going to do a, a lot of work in trying to encourage, raise money for that research, but also to raise money and to work with the other people in our group. We're going to carry on doing that to keep alive the, the growing awareness we've done of the nature of the condition and to try and help those 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are completely alone and who are have been shattered by the a diagnosis and just don't know what to do with themselves. So I'm going to be doing a lot of that. I'm going to carry on doing my games for as long as I can. I don't know how long that will be, but I'm going to carry on doing my games. I have an ambition of playing in the Parkinson's Golf Open, which I've got to get a bit better. But uh, the, the people who play in that, it's just extraordinary how you know how they, you, they're so impacted, but they they still do it. So I'm going to be doing a lot of that. We've got a place in France. We're going to, going to spend as much time as we can in, in France. So I will be perf- I will be perfectly happy. People ask, what are you going to do in retirement? Implying that there's nothing to be done. There's plenty to be done. But I'm not going to be doing. I don't think. I will be. I, I won't be doing private FDRs. I'm not going to come back as a deputy. So on the 28th of July, the waters will close over my head, and it will be, be as if I was never there. Well, I suspect some of the judgments will live on. Well, <laughs> thank you very much for your for your Thank time you. we've really appreciated it. it's been really illuminating 